Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, December 30th, 2022. It was on this day in 1873 that politician and eventual presidential candidate Alfred Emmanuel Al Smith was born in New York City. He faced a bit of opposition in his run for president against Herbert Hoover because of his Catholicism. And there was a great deal even of um, KKK opposition during his run. However, it did pave the way for other Catholics, such as John F. Kennedy, and eventually our current president, who is Catholic, to be elected despite their Catholicism and despite anti-Catholic feelings, which we unfortunately continue to see in our country today, which I'm going to speak of a little bit in the podcast. It was also on this day in 1979 that composer Richard Rogers, partner with Hart, and later with Hammerstein, eventually died. So we have a birth of an important historical figure in Al Smith and a death of an important composer, Richard Rogers of the Rogers and Hammerstein team, eventually passed away. But being that this is the day before the end of the year, and New Year's Day occurs on the 1st of January, this Sunday, on the one hand, it would be customary to look back on the year and how things have gone for all of us, the nation, the church, the world in general. I thought I'd look back just on this week since Christmas, because when you really consider how much, how many of us have really thought about the days following Christmas and how the church celebrates those days. Because it is an interesting group of saints that we remember. Quite a mixed bag, really. On December 26th, we celebrate the Feast of St. Stephen. On the 27th, St. John the Evangelist, one of the Twelve Apostles, and one of the four writers of the Gospels. On December 28th, it is a Christmas feast of sorts, in which we remember the Holy Innocents, the children who were killed by King Herod, causing the Holy Family to flee into Egypt. Herod killed these children in an effort to destroy Jesus. These are three major feasts that follow Christmas, but then a memorial comes on the 29th of an, a historical saint, a very important historical saint, St. Thomas Becket, before we eventually wrap it up at the end of the week with the Feast of the motherhood of Mary on January 1st. But even this year, today on Friday, December 30th, because Christmas falls on a Sunday and therefore January 1st, the Feast of Mary, Mother of God, falls on a Sunday, normally the Sunday following Christmas is celebrated as Holy Family Sunday, but because those two feasts fall on Sunday this year, the Feast of the Holy Family is moved to Friday, and so today we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Family, and even that has important implications for ourselves as Christians, as Americans, as we follow up on these days following Christmas. Let's just take a look at first St. Stephen, whose feast every year is on December 26th, the day after Christmas. We go from celebrating the birth of Jesus on the 25th to celebrating the first martyr. So in many ways, we go from celebrating Christmas to celebrating a post 
Easter post-Pentecost saint and the first of his kind. First, he is among the original deacons who were chosen by the apostles for service of the early church. So he's an important figure for those whose vocation is to be a deacon in the church. But Stephen is also the first martyr. And while on the one hand we can relate to martyrdom all throughout history, find examples of martyrs throughout history, in many cases, not all, but in many, the martyrdom is a result of a systemic persecution against the church, which would later be experienced by the church at the hands of the Roman Empire. Many of the saints we celebrate and remember in the Roman canon were martyred during organized persecutions, systemic persecutions of the church by the Roman Empire and other empires like them throughout history. In the case of St. Stephen, he was not killed by a systemic or organized persecution. He was killed by an angry mob who he whipped into a frenzy by preaching the values as a Christian he believed, by being that evangelist, by being that early preacher of Christianity, and raised such an objection among the Jewish people who were interrogating him that they rose up as a mob, dragged him outside the city, and stoned him. And there's where we get our introduction to Saul, who would eventually become St. Paul, a man who concurred in the stoning of St. Peter, but then eventually had a conversion of his own and became one of the greatest, if not the greatest, preacher of the New Testament. Certainly, uh, his preaching resulted in many of the works that we see in the New Testament, the letters, and at least two of the evangelists, Mark and Luke, were disciples or companions of St. Paul. But St. Paul, at the time he was Saul, concurred to the martyrdom of St. Stephen and is a true example of where martyrdom is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, Paul was present and concurred with Stephen's martyrdom, but eventually was moved by that faith and became one of its most stalwart preachers and himself a martyr for it. But we look at St. Stephen in preaching the gospel, whipped up into a frenzy, an angry mob that dragged him outside and stoned him. Now, we don't see stonings and we don't see uh, mass killings in that way like we saw with St. Stephen, but we certainly can relate to those Christian parents who are speaking out at school board meetings lately in defense of the values they want their children to be raised in and taught in our public schools. Not as a matter of systemic religion, but they certainly don't want the woke, gender-bending, gender fluidity, and racist education that many of them are objecting to, and many of them are calling upon their Christian faith as a background and a backdrop to why they are objecting to what children are learning in our public schools today. And what is the result? Angry mobs are shouting them down. They're calling what they are saying hate speech. One quotes from the scriptures, and they call it hate speech because they're in defense of other groups whose behavior is also unchristian and yet are being stalwartly defended by our society in many places, more so than the Christian value and the Christian faith. And just like St. Stephen, they may not be dragged out and martyred, but as St. Stephen preached the gospel, it is said that the people shouted him down. They put their hands over their ears so they wouldn't hear him. And we see 
angry groups of people reacting that way to these Christian parents who are standing up for the values they want to emulate, the values in which they want their children to be raised and educated. And we are seeing something very similar to what we see in St. Stephen in these parents who are standing up for their values, many of which are traditional Christian morals and values, and American patriotism in what they're doing. So St. Stephen is more than just the first martyr, the first one to be mistreated because of his witness to the Christian faith. He's an example to many people, even to today. We are not facing a systemic persecution in this country. We might be seeing ourselves moving closer and closer to it, especially when people who are defending life outside of abortion clinics are being arrested, people who are coming to church during a pandemic and being arrested for it because the government, in violation of the Constitution, has closed down churches. We're not seeing the kind of systemic persecution that we saw in the Roman Empire and in other nations and empires throughout history, but we are seeing groups of people who get very angry and almost whipped into a frenzy whenever they hear values of Christianity being expressed, borne witness to, and emulated. And certainly we see that example in these courageous parents who are standing up at school board meetings to demand that this godless education these children are learning be stopped and that they return to reading, writing, and arithmetic in a Christian-based America. And that's just the day after Christmas. What a change in tone of what we're celebrating and remembering in St. Stephen, the day after we remember the birth of Jesus. But just two days late after that, on December 27th, the day after the Feast of St. Stephen, the church remembers St. John the Evangelist. He's one of the four evangelists who wrote the Gospels, but his Gospel stands out as different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that his is a much more mystical gospel. It's in the gospel of John that we hear Jesus saying such things as, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. We don't hear that kind of rhetoric in the other gospels. However, it does show us the expansive reflection that the early church had in their coming to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what his ministry on earth meant for the world and for humanity and for all of creation. And while we're focusing on the baby born in the manger on these days after Christmas, remembering St. John, he doesn't begin his gospel with the birth of Jesus. He begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He begins with a truly mystical understanding of who this child is, so much so that he doesn't even bother talking about the child. He talks about the mystery of the incarnation. All cuteness of an infant is taken out now. And we remember that deep understanding that St. John had of Jesus and how he brought that to his writing of the gospel. And it's a reminder to all of us, we are called to continue to grow in the deepening of our understanding of who this child is in the manger. This child will grow up to be a man. This baby born in the manger will be the man who died on the cross. And so much so that there are some places 
in which we see the infant in the manger, in the nativity scene, sometimes with wounds on his hands and his feet, sometimes wearing a crown of thorns. In some infants that we see in the manger, he has one hand over his heart, his left hand, and his right hand in a motion of blessing. We see in the baby our high priest, our divine priest in Jesus. So even there, in some of the depictions of a manger scene, we see a Johannine understanding of the word made flesh, our high priest. And even when we look at the star of Bethlehem, what is usually one feature of the stars of Bethlehem that are depicted during Christmas? It has that longer tail, and it's in the form of a cross. It's a star, but that longer tail puts it in the form of a cross, reminding us of what this child's destiny will be and what his life and his death and his resurrection will mean for our salvation. So just two days after, we're celebrating the baby in the manger. Even if we go to a mass in which the first in which the gospel we read is that gospel that begins the gospel of John, we go from the baby in the manger to the Messiah who died on the cross at a much more mystical, substantial, and insightful understanding and interpretation of Jesus as presented by the youngest of the apostles, traditionally the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who, like Stephen, suffered a great deal for the faith but did not die a martyr's death, and whose tradition leads us eventually to celebrating John the seer on the island of Patmos, who had the great vision of Revelation. Even if it may or may not have been John the Evangelist, that tradition links these Johns together into a much deeper understanding in which we can really see past the baby born in a manger to the Messiah who would eventually die on the cross. But then, the following day, just three days after Christmas, in which we are remembering the baby born in the manger, we are remembering those children who were slaughtered by King Herod's order in an effort to destroy the newborn king born in Bethlehem. Again, a very sobering story, not one you would expect to be celebrated just three days after Christmas. And certainly a part of the Christmas story I like to refer to as the darker infancy narrative the tragedy attached to the birth of Jesus. And on the one hand, perhaps if we know our history, and again, this is faith, hope, and history, we can understand Herod's point of view, because kings at that time, and even down to today, to a certain degree, have an understanding that it is God who has appointed them to this. We certainly saw it in the medieval kings of Europe, and we see it in the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. The kings believed God had given them this power, God had appointed them, and therefore something was now threatening a God-appointed king. So Herod perhaps felt threatened and entirely justified. And it's not the only time we've seen examples of young children being killed because of the ambitious nature of a king. King John of England had his nephew murdered or so they say historically, there's speculation, but the historical presumption is because his nephew had a stronger claim to the throne, being the son of John's older brother, Joffrey. He was a threat to John's reign, and therefore either John had him killed or it was done in support of John's reign. And John, of course, is one of the more notorious kings of England. 
And we see other examples of that throughout history, where children, families, are slaughtered in order to maintain a status quo for a ruler. And there have been ideologies that believe, if I am the strong one, then I am entitled to this behavior. The weak deserve to be oppressed because they are weak. Certainly Nazi Germany had that attitude, as emulated in a Disney cartoon, believe it or not, called uh, Education for Death, in which a young Nazi boy is being trained to be a good Nazi soldier as a man. And when he's in school, he learns the story of a wolf eating a little lamb, and the boy feels sorry for the lamb, but he is reprimanded for that, and he's taught, no, the lamb deserved to be eaten. The wolf deserves to eat the lamb because the wolf is stronger, and as he is stronger, he's entitled to eating the lamb. He's entitled to dominating the weak. That's the point of view of many conquerors, and that is a contrary viewpoint of Christianity, who introduced to the world the principles of compassion for the poor, caring for those in need, protecting the vulnerable, because they are vulnerable, because they are in need. Christianity was a complete opposite of that, and it was that child born in the manger who had to flee into Egypt, who brought that value system to the fore in the faith that he gave to us, the salvation he won for us. But when you think of the holy innocents, none of them knew why they were dying. Not even their families knew why they were dying. These are people who never knew Jesus and yet were the first to shed their blood for him and because of him, because of him, showing just what kind of an, kind of an upheaval the birth of Jesus was for the world. It would have been an upheaval and was an upheaval for Herod, an upheaval for those he had killed in an effort to get to Jesus. It became an upheaval for the Roman Empire as a contrary value system that threatened the status quo and the pagan culture of ancient Rome and continues to be a countercultural force in the world today. But when we look back and agree, yes, there's more than one side to every story, as Christians, we would never want to know Herod's side of the story. It's just too horrific. We would never want to know King John's side of the story to murder a young boy, his nephew. We would never want to know the side of the slaveholders in the slave systems throughout the world and here in the United States. Do we want to know their point of view? No, because slavery is such a terrible thing that needed to be abolished. We would never want to know or understand anything from the Nazis' point of view. We are Christian people. We don't believe in domination as a right of the strong over the weak. And nor would we even want to know or consider the point of view of a woman who believes it is her right to kill her unborn child in abortion. All throughout these days, they're saying, you've got to see it from the point of view of the woman. Who would want to when that point of view leads to the slaughter of the innocents, innocent unborn children in the Holocaust of abortion that we've seen in our country today. And this just three days after Christmas, we are reflecting upon that Christmas event that was a great tragedy, yet we too can relate to in our modern world today as we see innocents continuing to be slaughtered, continuing to be murdered by people who believe that their domination gives them a right to exercise that dominion and suppression 
over the weak and the most vulnerable among us. And we can relate that conflict to what we deal with as a world today as we remember the holy innocents. We come to December 29th, in which we remember a bishop in old England, Thomas Becket, under another king who sought to oppress the church. Thomas Becket was chancellor under King Henry II, who actually was the father of King John, who I just referred to a moment ago. He was the wife, he was the husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine and the father of the Plantagenet dynasty in England that endured until the death of King Richard III. His good friend was Thomas Becket, who he had appointed chancellor. And when the Archbishop of Canterbury died, he influenced the appointment of his friend Thomas Becket to replace the Archbishop of Canterbury, obviously in the hopes that through his good friend, he can exercise control over the church in England. But once Thomas Becket became bishop, his priorities changed and he became a stalwart defender and protector of the rights of the church against the oppressive behavior of King Henry II and his lords and nobles. So strong was the antagonism that Thomas eventually had to leave England and go into exile. Eventually they sort of reconciled and Thomas returned to Canterbury, but continued in his antagonism against an oppressive English government that sought to dominate the church. And he stalwartly defended the rights of the church until Henry II ordered his assassination. Whether directly or indirectly, of course, is an ongoing historical debate. But as the story goes, King Henry II declared, Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? And a handful of his knights took him at his word, traveled to Canterbury, and murdered Thomas Becket. He stands as a symbol of defending the rights of the church in any government. And here in the United States, as I said before, we may not be facing a systemic persecution, but we certainly see people of a Christian faith having to defend them against angry mobs who want to put their hands over their ears so that they don't hear and shout down these Christians emulating the Christian values of the Christian faith that they want their children to be educated in and to which there is a faction that wants to indoctrinate our children against that Christian value. But we also seek leaders in our bishops who can be Thomas Becketts to defend the church and its rights and freedoms in this country. And I mentioned before, we have in our Bill of Rights freedom of religion, but we like to say that our first freedom is the freedom of speech. Actually, freedom of speech is at best the second freedom but at least the third, because if you look at the Bill of Rights, the first freedom in the Bill of Rights is not freedom of speech. It's freedom of religion, where it says, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or hindering freedom of speech or the press and so on. Freedom of speech and the press are mentioned only after two protections are made for freedom of religion in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. We are a nation that has a free church. The separation of church and state as a principle 
is not a protection of the state from the church, but a protection of the church from the state. And we need leaders, Christians, Catholics, people of all faiths to defend that freedom and the rights of faith and religion in this country. Because recently we saw it terribly violated during the pandemic. There is no exception in the First Amendment. It doesn't say except when there's a disease going around. It doesn't say except at time of war. It says Congress, and of course by default the government, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. During the pandemic, the government had no right or authority to close the churches. But it did. And it kept the churches closed. And while some leaders, yes, stood up and said, no, we will keep our churches open, leave the people to decide whether they want to come, if they feel safe or unsafe, take the precautions we need to take to help curb the spread of COVID. And yes, some of them perhaps, had they been advised, would have said, yes, we will temporarily close, temporarily close the churches. But the government had no authority to order it. Constitutionally, the government stays out of religion and does nothing to prohibit the free exercise of religion. Even when they try and take a moral superiority saying, we're here to prevent a disease and the spread of disease, we're here to keep people from dying. Sure, they can bring those principles and give their recommendations to the leadership of the church, but then the leaders make the decisions on their own, for their own. The government has no authority in this country to close churches. But we saw it happen. And we remember St. Thomas Becket, who gave his life defending the rights of the church in England. And we pray for more Thomas Becketts to defend the rights of the church throughout the world and other places, China, where the church is oppressed, other places where religion is marginalized, and even in countries like our own here in the United States, where the church is free from government oppression. And that is our first freedom as Americans. We remember St. Thomas Becket, and we pray for more Thomas Becketts to defend the church. Last but not least, we come to the day that is the octave of the Christmas celebration, and that is January 1st, the feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary as Mother of God. And on the one hand, we might figure, okay, what's the importance of that? Because we always refer to Mary as the Mother of God. It's one of the oldest things we refer to her as. Those of us who learned the Blessed Virgin Mary, is one of the first things we learned about her is that she is the mother of God. But it wasn't always the case. The title, Mother of God, is a Greek word, Theotokos, which was declared by the Council of Ephesus in the 400s, which was called in response to a error in teaching. We would call it today a heresy, but for the most part, it's an error. And the error is perhaps an understandable one, given the Greek nature of the church and the Greek culture that first embraced the church. In many of these stories of their heroes, such as Hercules, or as we know him in Greece as Heracles, we hear the story of how when the hero dies, after his death, he is elevated to the pantheon of the gods. That happened with with Heracles. After he died... His father Zeus 
raised him to be among the gods of Olympus. So it would be perhaps natural for early theologians, especially of a Greek background, to teach that Jesus was not divine until after the resurrection or after he ascended into heaven. It would be consistent, but that is an erroneous teaching. That is an error. It's called Nestorianism. And the Council of Ephesus met because this error was so widespread. They met to determine the teaching of the church with regard to the divinity of Jesus. They didn't come up with the teaching. They defined it, a teaching that was always there. And they looked at the tradition of the church up to that point, the teachings of the apostles, the writings of the early fathers of the church, and declared Nestorianism to be an error, that the eternal word that took flesh in Jesus meant that Jesus, the word made flesh, is divine from the moment of his conception in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Jesus is the eternal word made flesh. He did not become eternal after his death and resurrection. But from the moment of his conception, that incarnation was, et- was divine. And Jesus was divine from the moment of his conception. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. Theotokos, mother of God. It's not a central teaching of the church, but it's a consequence of a central teaching. The central teaching is, Jesus is divine from the moment of his conception. Therefore, Mary is mother of God. And that is what we celebrate on January 1st, is that declaration and recognition, that formal definition of a teaching done by the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. And what do we have on this day? We began with the birth of Jesus on Christmas. We began with martyrdom with St. Stephen. We continued with mysticism and a deepening reflection and understanding of Jesus with St. John. The holy innocence that we continue to celebrate and recognize continue to suffer today. The staunch defender of the rights of the church in Thomas Becket, in which we hope there are others like him who will come forth to defend the rights of the church in this country and throughout the world. And now we come to a theological teaching. We get very, very heady in these days after Christmas. We get very, very intellectual remembering that we are a thinking church. We're not a church of dunderheads and ignoramuses and superstitious people. We are an educated faith, a deeply theological faith, one that continues to live what we celebrate in the saints, even down to today, one who continues to reflect on the mystery of Jesus, as John did, even down to today, and the very things we declare of the Blessed Virgin Mary reflect that deeper understanding of Jesus and who he was, his divine and human natures, as the Messiah, and that word made flesh incarnate in Jesus. This octave of Christmas ends with that great, deep theological declaration. Jesus is divine from the moment of his conception, which we just celebrated in his birth, and which we remember on the Feast of the Annunciation on March 25th. Jesus is divine from the moment of his conception, and because of that, Mary is therefore Theotokos, the mother of God. And that is what we will celebrate this Sunday and every year on January 1st, one week to the day after we celebrate the birth of Jesus. So this is a very deep week of great reflections and great opportunity to relate to what the church is undergoing today in its teaching and in its experiences. 
And we have these reflections every year in the octave, the week after Christmas. So perhaps I've given you something to think about and something to appreciate, something to remember next year as we enter into the octave of Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Jesus the next time we gather as a church. But for now, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. And with any luck, I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.